Hello and welcome back to Bestowing the Brush. I'm so glad you're here with me tonight. It is, if you are listening in real time, it is a couple of weeks before Christmas. So I just wanted to tell you that giving the gift of art education is one of the most important things that you could do. I know you probably got all of your gifts ready for those that you love. Um, But think about that person in your life that may want this as a gift for themselves to do mother culture or to have to teach their children with um, or just for you. I think it's a great uh, gift to give to yourself as well. It also pairs very nicely with a brush and some pigments that you could set in the stocking. And you can head over to bestowingthebrush.com slash courses to look at that, purchase it, and to gift it to someone else. There is a little gift icon in the box that you can click and it will send them a redeemable code to redeem their gift. All right. As we are speaking about painting and brush drawing today, I will be reading you a parents review article called Brush Drawing. And this one is by Miss K. Loveday, and it was read at the Students' Conference in 1909 at the Easter Students' Conference. So, listen in as Miss K. Loveday talks to us about brush drawing. In the Fessole Club papers, Mr. Collingwood speaks of art as one of the means of educating the human spirit, the object of which is not to be attained, he says, by hastily piling up a babble of far-fetched graces and futile accomplishments, but by developing the resources and confirming the powers given. Then he goes on to say that art as a means of education has not fulfilled its mission. It has been too often employed in the service of vanity, to teach a mere accomplishment, an idle trick, by which the amusement of an odd half-hour shall be passed off as a colorable imitation of the work of genius and labor. There is no education in that, any more than in teaching dogs to dance and parrots to talk. And yet, art, when rightly directed, is educational, for it trains not only one faculty, but all the faculties together. It trains the hand and the eye, and it trains the head and the heart. It teaches us to see and to see truly. It teaches us to think. That science can do, but it teaches us also to admire and to love. It disciplines the emotions. With these views before us, how are we to begin to develop the powers we all have in our possession and continue in solid, straightforward progress? The means we employ in the Parents' Union School are picture talks and brush drawing. Our picture talks, if rightly given, will help to develop a real appreciation of beauty in art, a love and admiration of what is good and beautiful. And as for brush drawing, which is the subject upon which I'm going to speak particularly, we find in Mr. Collingwood's remarks our first object, an object that we must try not to lose sight of throughout our whole course of instruction, namely, to train the hand and eye, to teach observation, to see truly, to observe shape and form, light and shade and color, each in their due proportion, and then to be able to express what we have seen with 
the brush in a good, free, clear, easy style. But why with the brush only? Why should we select brush drawing as our means? Do we think it better than any other way? For instance, drawing the outline in pencil first and then coloring, which would probably produce a more exact perfect drawing in the end. Well, in the first place, we don't want to aim merely at an exact drawing. We must remember that the value of brush drawing is educational. It is a means, not an end in itself. But by this method, we can teach what no other can do so well, and that is touch. Keep this well in mind if you don't want your brush drawing lessons to be a mere waste of time. Think of the time it takes drawing a pencil outline first. Nearly the whole lesson is taking up with this before the painting can begin, and meanwhile probably the flower has faded, or if in water it has opened out more. Whereas in brushwork, you must do the thing quickly, and as it is done, thus it remains. There is little chance in brush drawing of altering a thing once it is on paper. Every stroke must be clean and correct the first time. There must be no going over the same thing again and again, no finicky work and patching up. And that is why brush drawing is such an excellent training in style from the very first. Then again, you have to try and look at things in a simple way to grasp the general effect of the whole thing and subordinate detail to composition. The tendency among painters of the present day is to obliterate detail and record impressions. Without going too far, I think we may learn much from them in this respect and encourage our pupils to look at things in a large way. It is much better to teach children to see things in their right proportion from the beginning, and this can only be done by letting them paint things in mass. The effects will seem more real to them and the proportions more easily seen and balanced than by any outline drawing. Now, let us suppose we are to begin teaching a child of six, class 1A in the PUS, who has never done any brushwork before. How are we to start? We immediately think of blobs and possibly don't feel in the least inspired. But still, the first lessons in brush drawing must begin with stroke practice, and I dare say it need not really be so tiresome and messy as we expect. We must show the children how to hold their brushes and how to use them. They must use the whole, not only the tip. A good deal of practice is necessary to make them work freely and easily and control the movements of their fingers. The direction of the strokes must be varied and the brush used in many ways. They can learn to make quite nice patterns and designs. Some children are rather clumsy to start with and will want more practice than others. The great thing is to keep up the interest and make them do really good clean work, not pages full of blobs, the last is smudgy and bad as the first. The right amount of paint and water, the hand held high, and the fingers well away from the tip of the brush, and the stick of the brush, always leading the stroke, never pushing it. These are the main points to be remembered. I should not spend too much time over blobs, a few minutes practice at the beginning of each lesson, and then let them attempt some natural object that they can have before them. I should begin with some simple sprays of leaves that have the shape, or nearly so, of the brush, and flowers such as snowdrops or buds of daffodils. 
but I should not let them do these in color quite at first. It does no good to let them misrepresent things, make them work in monochrome, and as soon as they have sufficiently mastered the strokes of the brush, make them distinguish between light and shade. They can always do their blobs and patterns in any color they fancy. Then, they will gradually be able to attempt more difficult subjects, animals amongst other things. There is always a certain joy in painting in life, and I think children feel this and are more easily interested in painting things from nature, and especially animals. I know there are certain difficulties about doing animals, there is not always one at hand at the right moment, and then they are constantly moving just when you least want them to. It will really be nearly all memory work, and, if, for that reason only, splendid training for the eye. You could get the children to paint any animals they have seen during their walks. Sheep, lambs, cows, birds, etc. Or perhaps they can watch some from the window. Or they probably possess pets of some sort, a dog, a cat, rabbits, a parrot, or some bird that they might paint in various positions. This kind of work affords excellent practice because it has to be done quickly and boldly. There is no time for minute details. The attitude and most salient features must be grasped and expressed simply. Broad effects must be aimed at. A boy of nine that I was teaching did some quite good studies of his dog, a rough-haired terrier that was always with us in the schoolroom and besides doing various insects in his nature notebook that we had temporarily secured under a glass, he one day painted a mouse that was caught in a wooden trap, and which he afterwards secretly let go to be the great annoyance of the housemaid. We must be very sure that the children paint what they really see, and not what they imagine they see. A great deal depends on making them look properly and carefully before beginning to paint especially when it comes to considering lights and shades and colors. I believe it is easier to study lights and shades in monochrome first. I always find it a good plan, in whatever they may be painting, to draw my pupils' attention to the strongest lights and shades by making them look at the object with half-closed eyes and say what they see. This shuts out the details and brings out the most salient lights and shades. Looking through a piece of colored glass has the same effect, and may be of use to some. Now, when it comes to representing colors, I believe difficulties sometimes arise. Personally, I don't see why there should be any if the previous teaching has been careful and graduated. But I am told that some children persist in seeing flat color instead of light and shade, and in seeing things not from perversity quite differently from the teacher. Of course, no two people see things exact alike, but seeing color quite flat in a rounded object and with a good light falling on it seems almost incredible. Unless those unfortunate children have something physically wrong with their eyes, it must be that they have never learned to look and observe, that their previous drawing lessons have been pure waste of time. Have you ever tried letting them paint reels of colored silks placed in a good position with the light falling on them sideways? It helps them to find the different colors of each when in the shade. They know that the silk is really all the same color, whereas in flowers it often varies even in one petal. Now they have to realize that colors appear different according to light and form. Some people see or imagine the most wonderful varieties of colors in their shadows. 
The old painters used to paint their shadows black. I don't think it is absolutely necessary to form any fixed rules about obtaining the right colors for the shadows, but there is one that may be useful, especially for children who have any difficulty in this respect. Mix blue-gray with whatever color you have used for the lighter part. This generally produces a good effect. Thus, for instance, pink and blue-gray will become mauve. Yellow and blue-gray, green. Red and blue-gray, purple. Green and blue-gray, a bluer, grayer green. All the colors required should be mixed on the palette before beginning to put them on the paper, and then the work should go straight on when once begun, using the colors in turns and washing one into the other where a graduated effect is wanted. Aim at getting the shades deep enough at once, for there must be no going over it again. As a rule, brush drawing seems to be applied chiefly to representing flowers and plant forms and making patterns. All the books I know of deal chiefly with these particulars. If you want a book to help you, I don't think you could find anything better than May Malum's work with the brush. Some persons of a utilitarian turn of mind hold that the main use of brushwork is merely in the nature of decorative design and pattern making, and in consequence, they trust very little to brushwork in any other respect. I don't think brush drawing should be looked upon only from that point of view. Designing is, of course, very useful and delightful, but I consider the main object of teaching brush drawing to be educational, and its greatest charm the good touch it helps to develop. It is not an end in itself, but a means to an end, and one of many, but we cannot expect it to stand alone and do everything. As the children get more advanced, their lessons in brushwork should be backed up by accurate studies in charcoal, chalk, or pencil. We hear sometimes that when children get to a certain point, generally in class three, they seem to stick there. I think they probably want more variety. Let them work in charcoal for a change. I did that one winter term with my pupils in classes two and three, and found afterwards that they looked out more for lights and shades, and that their drawings were more careful and accurate. I have said nothing as yet about teaching perspective. It is an important item that cannot be neglected, even in brush drawing. If they are taught to observe and to see truly from the first, the children will probably learn about it unconsciously, though they may never have heard the word. Whenever in their brush drawing any difficult as to perspective arises, I should then and there give them some hints that will help them to find out more for themselves. It is not necessary to overwhelm them with bewildering directions and explanations. But besides this, I think it would be good at some time or other, possibly when they get to the sticking point, to devote a few lessons specially to the subject and give them some more definite instruction in perspective. It would be quite simple, for instance, to begin with drawing two tall vases or candlesticks of exactly the same size placed on a table so that one is a good distance further away than the other, but so that the front one does not cover the back one. Let your pupils first compare their height with one eye shut and with a long pencil held vertically at arm's length, and let them draw them carefully and shade them in charcoal. Draw their attention to many examples that they may observe for themselves how things decrease in size the further away they are.
For instance, looking down at an avenue of trees, show them Habema's picture, people in the distance, etc. The next lesson, I would suggest letting them draw a large, fat book or a box and help them to notice how the lines converge. Put a few questions to them before beginning. Which point is nearest to you? Which furthest away? And always make them sit well back and straight on their chairs and with their pencil at arm's length and one eye closed, compare the lengths of the vertical lines. Observe that these always remain vertical and only decrease in height in the distance. And then holding the pencil horizontally, notice the direction of the other lines by getting the angle they make with the pencil and the amount of foreshortening. For measuring and comparing, the pencil must never be held in any other way than absolutely vertical or horizontal. In the summer, encourage your pupils to sketch and sketch with them yourself. Choose some fairly distant view with not too much foreground and detail. All that they have learned in brush drawing will be of use to them and help them in composition. They will be accustomed to looking at their subject with a view to simplifying it and laying hold of the general effect. They will know how much to put in and what to leave out, and they will work boldly and freely and with a good touch. I thought this article was really interesting where she talks about design and then the natural specimens, both being things that brush drawing really lends itself well to. And how also she says though that um, the practice of brush drawing, looking at things in a more general way will help you with composition and with perspective and that kind of these graduated lessons where the children have been taught really to perceive and observe and to see shapes, angles, lights, shadows, and lines, that all of those things go together to help them see in a more broad way, to figure out their compositions better, put things down in a more accurate, in, uh, in relation to like one another, the objects in space or in the landscapes. So those things. That really interested me, and I also really appreciate her, <laughs> really appreciated her um, her detail at outlining all this stuff. And now some of these things I will show you on my Instagram page since we can do video there. Podcasting is not great for that, but please do be checking me over at Bestowing the Brush on Instagram. I will definitely show you whatever you want from from this article if you want to email me. Or if you want to send me a direct message over there, please ask me if anything was a little cloudy for you in this article. I'd love to expand on that and to give you my perspective, pun intended, and uh, to show you a visual of what some of these things are, particularly with the perspective work, um, with the measuring and the pencil, which those things are all like more intermediate to advanced. Things like learning your first few strokes those are all in my course as well. Um, I go over all of those basic things, learning touch, learning how to be gentle, but use pressure on the brush as well. So that's a great resource. Also my YouTube channel. Um, and last thing I wanted to comment on here um, was what she said that WG Collingwood said in the beginning. And I just wanted to point out that drawing 
doesn't just train one faculty, but it trains all the faculties together, trains the hand and the eye, and it trains the head and the heart. It teaches us to see and to see truly. It teaches us to think. It disciplines the emotions. So I love that thought because sometimes we always think of things in these little boxes and everything is so separate from one another, but it's really not. And if you've been doing Charlotte Mason for a while, you've realized that, and I'm sure we'll all grow in our understanding of that more and more as we educate our children, that everything flows into another, nothing is isolated, nothing is separate. Learning drawing helps all of the other subjects and all the other subjects help you learn how to draw as well, too. So be encouraged. It is uh, Christmas is coming upon us this week, so I'll be taking a break here for a couple weeks. You won't hear me on the podcast. You won't see me on Instagram. I will be resting with my family, enjoying time with them. I'm really excited to do that this Advent. It's been such a crazy year, as you know. We all need a little break from being online and Zooming and listening to podcasts and watching YouTube and the latest current events. It's just nuts out there. So I will pray for you as I often think of you. And remember to pray for your students. Remember that they are persons. I had someone ask me this week that their child hates brush drawing and they're so discouraged by it because they love doing it in their free time. They're really having a great time, the parent. And the child just isn't loving it. And so I encouraged her to put it away for a while, to pray for their student, to kind of watch them and see what their interests are, but not to be pushy. Because, you know, when you're pushed into something, that really does kill the enjoyment and kills you wanting to learn about it. So I have full confidence that as the mom goes through my course, which she's doing, um, that her learning it, she will come up with great ways to introduce that into her son's life as he is ready. Um, not every child is ready right at six. So remember that too, that everybody's so different. Keep on going, keep on doing what you're doing because this is really important work that we are doing in our children's lives, giving them an education, giving them this time spent pouring our ourselves into them, serving them, loving them, even when it's hard. It's so hard on the daily basis to plan and prepare and implement and do this day after day that this this will all be worth it. Educating your children will will have such an enormous effect that I don't think we I don't think we realize, but it's what we're called to do. It's what the Lord wants us to do. So let's go out there and do it. And may you remember your Lord and Savior this Christmas season. I will talk to you all later. Bye.